It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, here in Germany. I'm in Bonn, and I believe, Michael, are you in Hamburg? Yes, I am in Hamburg. Good morning, good evening, good night, whatever it is. Indeed. Um, Michael, we are here to talk about yes. Wimbledon as a whole. We'll obviously touch on one or two other elements of your career. But this tournament obviously has a special place, I guess, in your heart, bearing in mind you won it back in 1991. Absolutely. It's uh, obviously from the sporting side, it's my my biggest win, my most important win, obviously. Um, the most emotional one. So, Michael, what are you up to these days? Well, I have uh, one thing that is a big part of my life is my foundation, which I'm running for nearly 30 years now. I've set up during my active times. It's taking care of HIV-infected and affected children. And okay. trying to bring a smile to their faces. Uh-huh. And uh, other than that, I hold speeches, motivation speeches about social responsibility. Uh, and I've started my career as an artist. Uh, I started painting 20 years ago. I collect for 25 years now. And I had my first exhibition last year. And okay. it's uh, going to be in a museum's exhibition. Another one in Düsseldorf this year uh, in a gallery. So that's very exciting and, uh, and interesting. Yeah, right. I, I wasn't aware. Michael, for me, I I started watching tennis in 85 when a certain compatriot of yours did pretty well at Wimbledon, let's say. Then um, I was most closely following the Becker and Edberg. So I'm from the UK originally, so Wimbledon kind of dominated the, the tennis life. For 50 weeks of the year, tennis was, was elsewhere. And then two weeks, oh, there's a, there's a tournament happening, you know. But... Um, do you, as a as a former winner at least, do you go back to Wimbledon? And if so, do you do you enjoy it? I don't know because some tennis players we see Pete Sampras just sort of and Andre Agassi kind of really take a step back from the sport. Federer is in that moment of I don't think he knows whether he really wants to be there too often, but he he loves the sport so much. What's your relationship right now with tennis? Well, I I had to learn obviously when I won Wimbledon in '91. Uh, it took me after the end of my career to really understand what it means to win Wimbledon. 
And going there is a big part of realizing and understanding because you become as a winner a lifetime member and you become more and more part of the history of the feeling of this very special club and, and event and location. And so I went there with my brother before Corona and uh, we always went there for two days, played one round of golf and then we uh, went and watched some tennis. And nowadays I try to go every year. Corona was obviously difficult, but I'm going there this year again. Uh, with some clients and, and some guests and uh, just spending a nice time there. It's great to see former colleagues and people from the club that you know for 25 years that have been around all the time. And I, I really appreciate it extremely now to understand that I'm part of something very special. Michael, this is primarily about Wimbledon, but you had some pretty good runs at the other three major tournaments, going very close at all three, actually. Do you have any sort of thoughts of could have been, you know, two Grand Slams. Well, my the biggest disappointment in my career was the uh, 96 uh, French Open final I lost. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the, the one loss that really still sticks in my mind. And I feel I, I, I had to win. I should have won. Um, and that I regret in a way, if you could say so. I regret very much. US Open was always tough for me to play. Um, difficult tournament with the crowd, with the way the Americans are, with the conditions. Uh, Australia loved very much, but I would have loved to win a second and, and a third Grand Slam. Obviously, I would have loved to win each Grand Slam once. You know, that would have been the yeah. perfect setup. Yeah, and then you would really be in an elite group, you know, Agassi and, of course, the big three and, and, and among others. Um, but still, at least you got one, and, and that's obviously amazing. But just that, that French Open final, or, or more broadly, actually, something I want to speak to you about is, I live in Germany, I've been here for a couple of years, uh, I'm, I see clay courts everywhere, um, but actually some of the bigger tournaments in this country do actually occur on grass, as it happens, like right now, on both the men's and women's side. Um, what is, why is it that I look at French Open winners and French Open success over the last... 40 years anyway, and don't see so many German names. And yet when I look at Wimbledon, especially on, well, men and women's side, you know, I, probably 20-odd Grand Slams, 15, 15 Wimbledon titles between men and women over the last 30, 40 years. Well, you have to say Steffi Graz knew how to play on clay as well. So she, she managed to do that. And obviously we in Germany, we grow up on clay, as you say correctly. But also yeah. in wintertime, we also grew up on extremely fast carpet surface. Yes, so true. we had that big variation of styles of learning how to play tennis. And I think that made it for us uh, possible to, to really play well on the fast surfaces as well, because we always had to adapt to different surfaces on extremes. And I think uh, because maybe in our time, because grass wasn't anything that was common in Germany, we looked so much forward to play on grass because there were not so many chances at our time. You know, you had two weeks of or two tournaments on grass and if you wanted to win, those were the two chances. If you look back, Australian Open used to be played on grass in the Kuyong Stadium, mm -hmm. uh, which mm -hmm. then I think in the mid-80s was changed to the, to the hard court. Um, but I think the reason why a lot of Germans are good on all kinds of surfaces is because of the variation of clay and very fast indoor carpet. That's really yeah, a good point. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Let's uh, focus a little bit more now on Wimbledon in 1991. Um, your run, I was just looking at it today... Uh, looked quite smooth for a couple of rounds, but then round four stuck out because round four was arguably the closest match in the whole tournament for you. I mean, 7-5 in the fifth. Probably a lot of people are more familiar with your run from the quarters onwards just because of the stellar names that you beat. But it was round four, wasn't it, where you nearly came unstuck? I was out. To be honest, I mean, it was a very special year that year because it was raining. The four first four days, it was completely washed out. And I started my first match against Dan Goldie on Monday and I finished on Thursday late afternoon and everything was postponed. <laughs> then we had the first time in the history of Wimbledon that the middle Sunday was played. A uh, nice occasion where Sir Cliff Richard was on the stands on center court, no roof, and it was raining and he was singing there with Martina Navratilova, Pem Schreiber. Yeah. I think they were singing singing in the rain, one of his favorite songs. So yeah. it was very special. And then came that round of 16 match against Alexander Volkov on the famous court number two graveyard of the champions. And he was serving for the match, I think, at 5-4 in the fifth set. And uh, I probably had the luckiest shot in my whole career. On, at 30-all, I returned. I, he played a good volley. I hit a running forehand passing shot, which hit the top of the net, went over his racket and landed on the sideline to get to mm. break point. And I think after that, he didn't win a point. So, okay. uh, yeah. So Maybe that unnerved him a bit. I don't know. Yeah. And sometimes you need that break, that bit of luck to really um, just do great things. And I had that luck on that day. That point or that match, by the way, can you find it? Have you got it somewhere? In Because, in, in, I mean, it's probably a little easier to get hold of finals nowadays, but but have you got that clip or do you, are you just relying on your memory or have you seen that many, many times, that point since then? Well, I have seen that clip just recently and just that point or that game or those two, three points because they were mm -hmm. highlighted at some stage. And, uh, yeah, to see that and to realise what the outcome was then at the end just even makes you uh, understand, yeah, you were a lucky man at that moment. In those two, three seconds, everything went your way. Yeah. Millimeters from greatness or millimeters within greatness, I guess, uh, is what makes us love tennis, I guess, in so many respects, especially as what can then proceed. And what did happen was you knocked out three of the giants or beat three of the giants of the sport in the next three rounds. Um, I think it was Courier, Edberg, and and Becker. Courier, of course, probably, although he, I think he got to one Wimbledon final, was a legend of the sport, but probably a bit more so away from Wimbledon. The semi-final against Edberg, and I think Edberg was the defending champion at the time. I don't think you broke his serve, right? You no, know, I didn't. I lost the first set, lost my serve once, and then I won the next three sets in tie breaks. Also, with very curious shots happening in the first and second breaker where he missed an overhead completely and not a difficult one, a very easy one to, for me to win the set. And then in the okay. second one, I think he double folded twice. Um, it seemed like he had a little bit of nerves and, uh, okay. and he, he never really enjoyed playing me. I mean, I think I have a good record against him and I enjoyed playing him. But obviously he was one of the all-time greats on grass with his kind of style, with his smooth surf and volley play. Uh, he was a tough one to beat, but I did it. 
Yeah. You were seeded six, Michael. So, you know, you were, you know, arguably a contender going into the tournament. Did you feel going into the tournament that you could win this? You know, this could be your your big moment? Well, you know, I came from the French Open playing the semifinals. The first time I did something good at a Grand Slam. I had a great Mm -hmm. draw at the French Open, but you still have to come through a lot in the semis against Jim Courier. And uh, after that, I, I realized, well, if you can go that far in a Grand Slam, um, what happens if you go to a surface that suits your game even more than the clay mm-hmm. court, which I still love. But um, And then, obviously, first going through the first rounds, you always want to go through the first week. You know, if you manage to go through the first week, then you're so somehow in that mode of now the tournament starts. Now, now the real match has come up. And uh, after the match against Volkov, obviously sitting down with my coach, Mark Lewis at the time, and uh, he was very unhappy with my performance against Volkov, and he was not happy with the way I behaved and everything. But after that, it was like some kind of, of heavy weight dropping off your shoulders. You know, you made it to the quarters, but you're not happy. You're not satisfied. You know, now the tournament starts, and I knew if I play well, I could beat anyone in the world. So we go into the final. You're going to be playing Boris Becker. I think he'd won it three times by then. I think all his three, you know, big titles came before that. But he'd also contested a couple of finals with Edberg. So he's probably on a run of something like five finals in six years, I think, something like that. And now this is, I think, going to be his sixth in seven. I remember this day. I don't remember the match so much, but I remember the day. And I remember where I was when I watched this final between you two. And um, I was a Becker fan. Um, so, but did you, did you feel going into that match that not just were you maybe a, a slight underdog, but also that the, the, the crowd were more for Boris and, and how did that make you feel? Well, I think Boris <clears throat> in general in that year came through to the final, but not as confident as he did the years before, you know, he kept winning his matches, but he was struggling a little bit. He was, uh, he was, um, showing that he is a true champion by coming through matches where he didn't play his best tennis. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think so much about the crowd. For me, it was like being my first Wimbledon final was uh, the biggest thing, obviously, ever. And I remember that my manager at the time um, called me up and said before the match, to just call me down, you know what, you're in the finals, that's a great achievement. You know, give it your best shot. You've got nothing to lose. You know, as sometimes we tell our kids, you know, just don't put too much pressure on yourself and enjoy it, whatever that means. And I said to him on the phone, I said, you know what? I got a Wimbledon title to lose, probably more than I ever lose, could lose in my whole career again. So that I was very aware mentally that this is it. And I, I, I want to go out there and win. And then before the match and my coach, Mark Lewis, we have a very close relationship, always tells me, uh, he, he told me, so, you know, go out there, um, you know, give it the best and, you know, you're going to be able to win this match. And I looked at him, I said, there's no way I'm going to lose this match. And uh, I felt very confident. I felt very good about myself. And I was, uh, it sounds after, after playing the final, it always sounds a little bit strange, but I was very sure I was going to win that match. Okay. That's interesting. Um, I mean, the thing is when, when I, when I think about that match and I think about Boris's trajectory as well, I mean, he, he never really did. I think he got to a final one more time years later. What about you, though? Where was your... Now, on that day, uh, I'm just thinking about the, the anxiety you may have been feeling. Was it for you 
the most nervous what was the most nervous match you had in your life and it was it that one and if it wasn't you know what was it or why not i was not so much about nerves on tennis court um i okay. you know i was able to quite well be within myself i was a very emotion a very emotional player so i, I took the emotions offside the court with me onto the court so if i was in a bad mood for whatever reason that might have been i played badly if i was in a good mood because i was happy i played great tennis a lot of the other guys like Bosch, like sempris and all of the, these guys they were able to block any kind of emotions out once they walked on court i mm -hmm. didn't have that ability which also then again made me the person i am right now you know it just made the difference and if I was feeling confident, I was uh, I was very happy. I think the most I doubted myself. Let's put it this way: not because of nerves, but just because of the whole setup. Was when I played the U.S. Open final against Andre Agassi, Agassi okay. a player I never beat in my career. I never really enjoyed playing against, even though I I, I liked him very much as a person. And then you play an American, Andre Agassi, one of the heroes in America, in that huge stadium, twenty four thousand people. You play against a guy you don't haven't beaten before, then you have the crowd. That's where I was feeling like, well, you know, that's a tough one to win. And once you have those five, ten seconds of doubt, it's just going to compromise your performance. And that's what happened. And that's uh, that's the match where I was not even close from my feeling of winning that match. And that was probably not the most disappointing, but the most frustrating one because... I was the reason why it didn't happen. I know that my attitude made that match the way it went, and that uh, is not a good feeling as an athlete. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I just want to talk about match point against Boris. Not, not because it was necessarily a, a, a dramatic point, but um, now you're, you, you, you know, you've got match point in that match. Are you, are you, are you excited? Are you, are you, I, I mean, I, I'm just trying to think how it is for us mere mortals who've, who've never played the game at that level. You know, do, do you start, do you, even during the match, do you start thinking about lifting the trophy or can you manage to block out those thoughts? Well, I, I never thought about lifting the trophy, but obviously, you know, I, I, I played well that third set. I was two sets to love up and you know, you have to finish it at some stage. And obviously, uh, it is a little bit more difficult to finish it on your own serve when some kind of thoughts might creep in. Not really, really being aware of it. You know, it's all happening within yourself. It's not like you're saying, standing there and serving and saying like, oh, well, I can win this now and I might be nervous, whatever. It all happens within yourself. So when I had that match point, I really felt like finish it now. You know, don't give him another chance to come back and to do something special, which with Boris was always possible. And uh, you don't want to get into a situation, situation where you might lose that third set and that, that whole match starts all over again. And when yeah. I had match point, I knew obviously my forehand return was my weakest shot, so to say, on grass. 
and I was quite sure it was going to serve to my forehand. So I, you know, put everything on one card and felt like take a chance and it just happened and it worked out. Yeah, nice. Um, also, as you say, maybe being a returner uh, on match point in a way and also just thinking about that psychological element of he's probably going to go for my forehand, bearing in mind sort of your, your strengths and weaknesses. Um, let's uh, fast forward, if you don't mind, to today, but also with a look back at yesterday, if you like. What do you think about Wimbledon today compared to when you were playing the sport? I guess some of the obvious cliches about serve and volley has gone, the, the more, you know, longer rallies perhaps from the back of the court with the big three obviously having an influence on that. What are your general thoughts on, on why that is and, and do you miss the olden days? Well, first of all, you know, if you look back now at Wimbledon and see it now, I mean, the club itself has transformed extremely into the modern days, but have kept the tradition, the history extremely well. That is good to feel that that didn't change. You know, the game has changed a lot and there's no certain volley being played anymore, which I find a shame and I don't understand, honestly, because... Uh, if I have the option running left and right 20 times at the baseline or coming to the net after the fifth shot, I know what I would do. I would rather run to the net and finish the point. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, I still believe if a Pete Sampras, let's take Pete as a, one of the all-time greats on, at Wimbledon, if Pete Sampras at his best would play at Wimbledon now and play surf and volley game, he could easily still win it as he did 25 years ago or 20 years ago. So... Um, the game itself has changed a lot. It's much more athletic, it's more physic, physical, um, but it's less creative, less inventive, less... Um, the players are not taking a lot of chances, and that I miss very much, because those different kind of styles, Agassi has a great return and passing short hitter against guys coming into the net, made the game so extreme interesting on grass. And the reason why they changed some things was like because they didn't want it to have those short points, surf and volley and huge big surfs. If you look at the guys right now, they surf bigger than we did. They probably don't hit so many aces because the game has changed. But surf still plays a huge part in this game on grass. And sometimes I feel like just run to the net and finish it off with a volley. And they don't do it. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, Michael, actually, on that exact point, I was talking to a, to a coach the other day and uh, he was saying that when he was watching Federer, when he had those two match points against Novak in 19, 2019, he was like, go to the net. I know Roger's not very well known for doing it, but he's just, as, as a coach, he was said, just go to the net. He's not going to pass you twice, although with Novak, you never know. Let's talk about 2023 right now. We've just seen Carlos Alcaraz, of course, win Queens. We've got Novak, I think, having won seven titles there. And I think he's very close to, to obviously getting an eighth, potentially, bearing in mind where he's at right now. What do you think about 2023 and, and, and Alcaraz and Djokovic and obviously with Nadal and Federer sort of fading into the background? Well, obviously, you have to see Novak as the big favourite, um, winning the Australian Open and the French Open. He has, uh, he has proven that he is... Um, one of the best players uh, and able to highlight his game when the big occasions come up. So he has to be one of the top favorites. I truly believe um, we had a podcast ourselves yesterday, which I do with Patrick Kunin called Madrog and Wingman. And we spoke about okay. that obviously as well, the outlook. And I picked Carlos Alcaraz as the winner this year, um, just because he won just his first title on grass. 
I think he is extremely, um, in a way, extremely able to adapt to situations and to challenges, not just because he has the game, just because he is, he's loving it. You know, he loves it to, to challenge himself. And um, I think he has learned a lot of players. When you look back at the French Open semifinals against Novak, his breakdown, his physical and mental breakdown, with a lot of players, you would say like, well, they would struggle with that for the next weeks and months to come. I think with Alcaraz, he has learned a huge lesson from that match. And it will never happen again to him. I think it made him even stronger and a better player. And that's why I really feel like he believes he can Wimbledon. And he wants to prove to the world that that was a one-off and it's not going to happen again. And I think if you would look at it and he would be honest, maybe he would say like, I want to play the final against Novak and I want to prove to the people that's not going to happen again and I'm able to win this. So my pick really is Carlos Alcaraz. I know we're coming to the end now, Marco, but I have got one more point, which is actually kind of related to some of the things you just said about Carlos. I remember a year ago, Carlos on social media at Wimbledon, he just seemed to be having a great deal of fun. And he, he still, with the exception of probably that an hour or so against Novak, whenever I watch him, I've actually been fortunate enough to meet him a few times. Um, he's just, he, you know, he walks into the press conference and of course he's, most of the time he's won and he's just grinning. He can't quite, you know, off the court, he's on the court, he's a particular player, but off the court, he's very relaxed and very cool and, and, and just having the time of his life. And I remember at Wimbledon last year, he's posting pictures of him having breakfast in, in the house that he's living in. And this is where it brings me to you, Michael, because I, I do just want to return to that two-week period. Have you got anything that, that were you staying in a house, I guess? Because this is where Wimbledon is a bit unique as well, where a lot of you guys rent a house for, for two weeks, right? Yeah, it was at the time something that uh, started that you rent a house, being close to the club, obviously, because the way from the site to the city is a quite long one with the traffic in London, even worse now than it was at our time. So the easiest way was renting a house and spending time there, finding a rhythm, you know, being like at home, but not feeling too much at home, you know, that you're not too relaxed. You still need to be focused on what you do. But we did it as well. We rented a house. We could walk in the morning to the club. We had our own rental car. So to drive there, when the weather was bad, you had a chance to just get off the side. We just imagine you have like 300 players, coaches or 400 on the first week. And if it rains, it's all crammed and packed and you need to find your space to get away. And uh, as you said, with Carlos Algaraz, it's like, that's a great thing about the young generation with him, with Holger Rune, with the Italian guys, Musetti and so on, Yannick Zinner. They seem to enjoy the game again. They seem to not just run after success, but also explore their options and their potential. And if they lose, it's not all about, well, that's terrible and so on. They, they take their lessons from it. And that's what I love about, especially Rune and Alcaraz are two very specific characters. They enjoy when they play a great shot. They have a smile on their face when that drop shot works and they've outplayed their opponent. And that's what it's all about. My credo in my life and my tennis career was always tennis is a game and a game needs to be played and not to be worked. And to be able to play a game, you need to have enjoyment and also disappointment. You need those two extremes on both sides. Only then you are able to really play and play the game. And I think that young generation gets a little bit more back to that as the big three didn't do it. They still love the game and they enjoy it, but it was more very focused. Not too much emotion shown on court and not 
being too involved with everything else. And the younger generation takes a little bit of a step back, which I really enjoy seeing. And that's, uh, that's good for the game, I think. Do you still play? Uh, I was just in Halle for two days uh, with, with, with clients. And I, I was there with Patrick Kuhn and we actually played not on grass. We played two times on clay. And it was the first time for a year that I played, but I really enjoyed it. Good. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Michael. But be before I let you go, I just want to tell you, you have appeared on the show before, not to your knowledge, but I did an interview about with a former Nike director and we, we had a little clip from you, I think, around about early 90s where you're in this Nike advert. And it's, it's, it was a sort of a, a reason we had we showed this clip is because that was the beginning of what actually became quite a good trend for the, for the brand of, of using the sport. And I think you're, you're serving, I think you're on clay as well. I don't know if you remember the Nike advert I'm referring to. Um, but we, we shared this clip because it was a, a beginning of a trend for Nike to, to start using tennis and do some funky things with, with tennis players, if you like. Yeah, I, I still remember the clip. I think it was a little bit like where I surfed and uh, they just showed my hat, so to say, and just showed what all the emotions. I, you know what? I still don't un understand the clip, but it was a fun clip. <laughs> yeah, well, we showed it because the, the guy who I was talking to said, well, I, and he was a, a Nike director. He was like, well, you know, um, we remember when we had Michael and we used this and this clip. And so when I edited it afterwards, I made sure I put that clip in there. And from then onwards, let's say maybe Nike made their, their uh, commercials a bit clearer. A, a bit clearer, a bit bigger, and obviously the brand became even much bigger. And uh, but that's great. You need those kind of brands for the sport, and also to highlight the athletes themselves and to promote the athletes and the game and those two things together. And I think Nike did a, Nike did a, and does a tremendous job in that. Michael um, Wimbledon winner. That will always be the case. Nineteen ninety one. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.